But what happened with the pandemic is because it was affecting disproportionately older people, the, the people who were dying were people over 75, especially people living in nursing homes, it unleashed this, this almost um, acceptance of being vocal about not you know, appreciating older people. Uh, I can think of the hashtag boomer remover. Hello, and welcome to Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you are a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. If you work for a living, this podcast is for you. It contains important information that your perspective, current, or former employer does not want you to know, including the basics of your rights and obligations in the workplace, as well as practical tips on how to level the playing field regarding issues that arise every day on the job. Each future episode will feature an expert on the workplace or a guest who may tell us about his or her particular occupation. Hello and welcome to Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking. This is episode 22, emanating from Studio One at Gwynn Sound in Cincinnati, Ohio. Today's episode is called A COVID-19 Side Effect, The Resurgence of Ageism. Our special guest is Kate DeMadaris, a professor of gerontology at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. I have spent a good chunk of my legal career on age discrimination cases. They always seem to be the easiest for juries to understand, in my opinion, anyway. A lot of people seem to think, wrongly in my view, that there is not a lot of race discrimination or sex discrimination anymore. After all, we have elected a black president, and women hold major jobs in America, and a woman has been elected as vice president uh, recently as if those events erase racism or sexism. On the other hand, people always seem to understand that age discrimination exists. Companies prefer younger employees over older employees if they can get away with it. And as a result, age discrimination cases are often the hardest for companies to defend in court. And to emphasize this point, about the prevalence of age discrimination, the United States Equal Employment Opportunity Commission recently issued a statement about ongoing systemic age discrimination in our country. That begins, for example, with companies posting jobs for, quote, recent college graduates, unquote, as if the job only needs recent college graduates, or they advertise for applicants who are, quote, energetic unquote, because older people are often stereotyped as lacking that trait. We will touch on these issues to some degree with Dr. DeMadaros and try to understand why ageism exists. Now, it always seemed funny or odd to me that federal and state law defines older workers as being over 40 years of age, 
I knew and I know plenty of people in their 40s and never thought of them as old. And I have learned that no jury ever takes a claim of age discrimination by someone in their 40s all that seriously. In my practice, I found that most jurors at least think that age discrimination begins at age 50, and often successful age discrimination cases involve folks between 55 and 65. But the further irony is that once you are over 65 or so, people almost accept age discrimination with the idea that someone over 65 ought to get out of the way. They are often called blockers that prevent younger people from advancing. Because of my interest or passion in age discrimination, I thought it would be interesting to talk to someone who studies age as part of her career, and so I did a little research and identified one of the foremost experts on aging, Dr. Kate DeMadaris. Kate, welcome to Freaking Out About Work. Well, thank you for having me. Kate DeMadaris is the O'Toole Professor of Gerontology at Miami University. Kate received her Ph.D. in gerontology from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County in 2006. She is a researcher, and her interests are concerned with cultural structures affecting the experience of aging and the construction of self, such as autobiographical writing, as well as personhood in people with dementia. In 2008, Dr. D. Medeiros received one of only four Brookdale Leadership Awards in Aging Research. Her research has also been funded by the Alzheimer's Association and the National Institute of Aging. In addition to numerous research articles, she recently published Narrative Gerontology in Research and Practice. So, Kate, enough about you. <laughs> Before we get into this serious issue of aging, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you were raised, things like that. I actually come from northeastern Ohio, from Medina County, um, and grew up on the the rural side. So there's a city of Medina, which I tease my colleague who's from there also and say, I wasn't from the big city, I was from the country. Um, I grew up there, uh, have lived in several places in the U.S., um, went to school at Northwestern, lived in Texas, um, recently came from Maryland. So I've been to a lot of places since leaving Ohio, and now I've been back since 2011 here in the other side of the state. Down in Oxford. Down in Oxford, yes. Does that remind you of where you grew up at all with all the farmland? and? It really does. Um there's something so beautiful about looking out your window and seeing green and, and just, you know, no buildings and things like that. Um, the deer get a little tiresome after a while because they do eat everything, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, I always want to ask people about their parents. What did your parents do for a living? So my father was retired from the Coast Guard. He enlisted when he was 15, lied about his age. He tried doing that with the Navy, but the Navy checked. <laughs> Apparently, the Coast Guard didn't. I used to um, lie about my age when I went to Oxford <laughs> back in college. So he um, you know, worked his way uh, up and became a, uh, a warrant officer at the end of his career and then had a couple careers in retirement. But that was 
an achievement he was very proud of. And interestingly, uh, when he was only 17, he married my mother, who was 15. Um, and, you know, one of wow. the smartest people I know in the world. Yes. Yeah. So education was a huge value for my parents and for my siblings. Um, so I was raised, you know, with always looking up things in the dictionary. Um, we had an Encyclopedia Britannica that solved many an argument at the dinner table. And so it was it was a, a very nice upbringing. How many children in your family? There are four of us. I'm the youngest. And my siblings would say that I'm spoiled, but I'm really not. <laughs> now, I think you're married to a Navy guy. I am. Tell um, us a little bit about him. My husband, Al, is actually a Miami grad. He is uh, an immigrant from the Azores, so he came to the U.S. when he was only seven, and his name isn't really Al, it's Liberio, but his teacher couldn't pronounce it, so said, we'll just call you Al. Um, <laughs> so we met, I was a, briefly a student at Miami, I ended up transferring, but we met then, and many years later got reconnected, and um, married, and he was a career uh, naval officer. He retired a few years ago and now works for the Air Force at wright Pat in Dayton. So do you have family arguments about the Coast Guard versus the Navy? <laughs> no, no. We, we, uh, I think that uh, they you know, all involve water, so all's good. Now, now, when you get the Air Force and the Army involved, then all bets are off. But. And how long have you been a teacher or a professor? At Miami, I came in 2011. However, prior to that, I did some teaching um, in Baltimore. I was actually the director of a research institute called the Copper Ridge Institute, which had an affiliation with um, the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine Department of Psychiatry. So there, I, I, I like I say, I did teach but my primary role was research where I worked with people in long-term care who had advanced stages of dementia. But I also, you know, do a lot of community work. So prior to going to Hopkins in my uh, graduate studies, I did a lot of work on um, women who are older who didn't have children and talking with them about what their lives are like, uh, some of the misconceptions about people who don't have children. Um, I participated in mm -hmm. another great study on the meaning of suffering in later life, which was really, really fascinating. So, so a lot of my work has been uh, involved really talking to people about some of these fundamental experiences that we have as humans that we often don't think about. Now, one of your specialties is this aging process, correct? Uh, more of the social aspects of the aging process. I, I don't study any of the, the medical or the biological aspects. Now, how did you become a researcher in aging? Well, you know, if you would have asked me as a college student if I would be a gerontologist, I would have laughed in your face and said, absolutely not. I, so your major was not gerontology. No, no, no. I was an English and American literature major. So, of course, it makes perfect sense that I said aging. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> but, Leads right into gerontology. <laughs> but it does. When I look back, I think, what a perfect trajectory. Um, I was enrolled in a graduate program at the University of Texas Medical Branch. It was medical humanities. And I was interested in thinking about gender bias in language. 
that's what I started out doing. Okay, and but there's a lot of that. There is, yes. Um, you could have studied that all day long. I, and I thought I, did, I wanted to. Uh, I was working at the time and going to school, and my job was, was going well, and so well that I thought, you know, I don't even know if I need graduate school. So my mentor, Tom Cole, who is a cultural historian, and now he's the director of the Ethics Center at University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, um, he pulled me aside and said, well, you know, I don't want you to leave the program. Would you think about putting together a writing workshop for older people? You know, this is kind of the thing now. Um, and you could do it as an independent study. And I thought, oh, my God, that sounds horrible. But I really respected him. And I said, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So he had asked me to put together something that other people weren't doing, to think about my training and as an undergraduate in, in literature. And what did I know about telling stories from a literature standpoint? So, so I did. I worked, put together a 10-week workshop. And the first day that we had, so it was open to people in the community in Galveston, Texas, 65 and over, who you know just wanted to volunteer? I think we had about ten people who hmm. signed up. We met at the local library. Um, I was nervous. I didn't know what people were going to say. I had never worked with older people. I had a grandmother <laughs> who I loved, but you know. And from the moment the workshop started, I knew that I wanted to shift everything I was doing and study aging and gerontology, and I did. Uh, I didn't stay in Tom Cole's program. I stayed at that university, but I did end up finishing my master's there in gerontology and and just never looked back from there. Now, you mentioned Tom Cole as a mentor. Are there other people in your life that you think have influenced you either on a personal level or with your career? I tease my brother, who I'm very close to, and say that he's the one who got me into aging because <laughs> when we were little, he's um, three years older than I am, he found out that if he wanted my dessert, all he had to do was tell me a sad story, and I would give him anything to shut him up. So <laughs> he used to make up this story about this old man who lived alone, and it was his birthday, and he knew someone was going to come and visit him, and no one came. And I would just say, <laughs> stop it, stop it. And so I, I like to think that he drove some of that passion in my wanting to know who this old man was and why nobody came to visit him. Um, but another person who was really instrumental was my mentor, uh, second mentor, my PhD, who has since passed away, uh, Robert Rubenstein. He uh, was a cultural anthropologist who really got me to think about the way that culture and the way that we are kind of taught to see the world influences a lot of things, including how we think about aging, you know, that it's not a natural process. It, it is in that we age biologically, but the way we're treated as we age is very much a social construct. And so that's really been instrumental in, in the way I think about things. You know, we talk often on this podcast about people finding dignity in their work, you know, regardless of your occupation. Um, and President Biden mentioned it in a speech the other night about how people find dignity from working. How do you think you find dignity in this area of study of aging? I think there's a couple ways. So when I was in Maryland, I did a lot of hands-on work with people. Um, you know, I mentioned working at the Copper Ridge Institute, and one of the things I did there is 
did some explorations on the social worlds of people with dementia. So, you know, you see people who have you know profound dementia, which involves memory loss and loss of language mm-hmm. skills. And people tend to think of folks like that as not really being, I w- don't want to say not being human, but we think about a loss of self. People call it the long goodbye. You, you think of, of not having a life mm-hmm. that's really worthwhile. But then I found out that people actually do have very worthwhile lives. That sometimes we just don't see them. And so anytime I was able to connect with a person living there on, on a small way, put them with someone, another resident who they might be able to talk with or just those simple acts, to me that was really profound. I don't work directly with a lot of people now in my role at Miami, but if I can get students to suddenly see the world a little differently, um, I, I always joke on the last day of one of the classes I teach, and I, I say, remember two things, save for retirement and don't be ageist, you know, which I think saving That's for retirement advice. is important. But, <laughs> but, you know, if I can get students to suddenly stop seeing age as something to make fun of or to fear and to start realizing that the way that they treat people who are older in their perspective now, that's going to be them. And to me, that that's a, a, a really important part of what I do. Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of us are facing this situation either with parents, relatives who suffer from dementia. It's just so heartbreaking. But I guess it's important to realize that they have lives. Absolutely. And and it might not be the life that you remembered for that person, but it doesn't mean that that, that person's gone either. So, for example, you may go visit a person that you're close to who doesn't remember who you are. But that doesn't mean that an hour after you leave that that person doesn't think someone who cared about me was here. I, I felt loved mm-hmm. by some interaction I had. You know, so, I mean, we, we if we can... St- change the way we think about, you know, what we expect from people. We put so much focus on language. And I, I say that as somebody who likes to study stories and, mm-hmm. you know, really um, from a language perspective. Um, but but there's a lot that goes on that is just simply, you know, in the profound acts that we show of love, of, of respecting another's dignity, of, you know, mm-hmm. of respecting people as people. And that's that whole aspect of personhood that that I'm very interested in. Okay. Well, let's maybe get back to a very basic thought. Could you tell our listeners the answer to the question of what is gerontology? That was your major, right? You get yep. your PhD in gerontology? I did. So what is gerontology? So gerontology, just broadly defined, is the study of old age. I am what I call and others call a social gerontologist. So I'm specifically interested in, you know, these social structures. So whether it's retirement or, you know, ageism or, you know, anything that you can imagine in the social world that affects aging, that's what I study. And that to differentiate, say, from a biologist or somebody who might have more of a um, that technical aspect. Um, as a gerontologist... I am concerned with, you know, uh, perspectives from psychology, sociology, economics, um, you know, the humanities, ways that all kinds of people have looked at this thing that we call old age, Um, historical perspectives, cultural perspectives. And what I try to do with that is, um, you know, try to make sense of 
how we experience age now. You know, what are the things that we've inherited from our cultural pasts that that we don't even know that we, you know, are influenced by? Um, age 65, for example, total random age to consider being old. Um, it, I, I think it started with the New Deal. No, it was way before that. It was Otto von Bismarck. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so Otto so von Bismarck. So it wasn't Bismarck, FDR. It no, was, it was uh, not. It was, it, it was institutionalized with uh, FDR, with the Social Security Act in 1935. However, Otto von Bismarck was the first person to say, you know, as the Industrial Revolution was, you know, changing the structures of how people were cared for, he's the first one to say, you know, we should probably have something, you know, available for people if they're not able to work anymore. And his original age was 70 because he did a census of, uh, you know, his uh, lands, and uh, that was the age at which it didn't seem like there were a lot of people. It was the break-even, you know. Mm-hmm. So he originally had it at 70 and started the first retirement system for non-military people. The militaries have had retirements for a long time. But he then changed it to 65. And so 65, for no reason other than Otto von Bismarck, it has been a marker for for old age. People think that when they hit 65, they somehow change. As I tell my students, nothing in the human genome has, you know, an, an old gene that you hit, you know, 65 and then boom, you're different. You know, you're not going to suddenly mm-hmm. change. Chronological age, in fact, is a very poor predictor of many things. But we put so much stock in into it socially when really it's an age of eligibility for, you know, these kinds of government programs like retirement, which is exactly how it was started and institutionalized. So I probably should remember this from one of my history classes when I was younger, but Otto Van Van Bismarck is from what era? Is this Uh, 1800s? Yes, latter 1800s, yes. Because that's when when people didn't have as long a life expectancies either. And and so just to kind of... I know we're going a little bit off topic, but let's do it. That's okay. it's... Just a little bit of a misconception about life expectancy. So I, I can remember in school reading Romeo and Juliet and having, the, you know, the teachers say, well, you have to understand people only live to 30 then. There's this misunderstanding that people didn't live into old age. People have always lived into old age and there always have been old people. It's just that life expectancy is an average. And since so few people survive childhood, it brings the life oh. expectancy average down. So... Now, in the U.S., uh, life expectancy at birth is somewhere around 76 years for the entire population. And it's an average because now fewer children die um, and fertility is down as well. And those things affect that. that but, okay. but it's not that we're living longer. It's just that more of us aren't dying younger, if that makes sense. So once you survive till you're 15 yeah. or 20 years old people survive back in those days into their 70s and 80s like we do now. Yes, yes. There just weren't as many of them. So your odds of living past 10, I think only one in five children lived past age 10 because of, you know, childhood diseases, um, clean water was was a big issue. And, and once sure. people got a handle on those public health things, sanitation, <laughs> clean water, and then later vaccinations, then you see a whole shift 
and you see these um, life expectancies going up. It's not because there's wacky machinery keeping people alive at the end of life. I mean, we always think of these mm-hmm. sci-fi scenarios. It's not that. It's the simple things like, you know, like I say, water and sanitation and uh, access to childhood vaccinations. Well, we always say we learn something new every day, and there's something I've learned that's new. <laughs> I never realized that before. I always imagined people just lived shorter lives, but that makes perfect sense. Now, I mentioned earlier your publication about narrative gerontology. How is that different than the more general topic of gerontology? So gerontology is broad about aging. Narrative gerontology looks at the ways that we age biographically. And by that, I mean the stories that we tell about aging, the stories that are told about aging. So it could include personal stories, but also we have cultural stories. So if you think about myths, for example, from Western culture, and you think about myths of aging, um, one thing we know is that whenever anybody wished to live forever and they didn't ask for eternal youth also, you know, it backfired. If you think of the myth of Tithonus, who gets eternal life but not eternal youth. Um, there are several uh, fairy tales and other things in Eastern culture, too, about you know finding the river of, of life and drinking too much. And so we, we, we're, we're given these narratives, if you will, or these scripts of, of you know, what to expect about life stages and things like that. So that's part of that whole idea of stories and how stories shape experience as well. Now, you also published a book called The Short Guide to Aging and Gerontology, in which you made a few observations that I would like to learn about. The first observation you called the fear of death and the quest for the fountain of youth. Talk about that. Is that what you were just alluding to? Yeah. If you look really at our whole, you know, and again, I'm going mostly on Western um, you know, literature and and myths and and texts, holy texts, and uh, there's always been this drive to find the fountain of youth. I mean, you can clearly, you know, Ponce de Leon, you know, spent mm-hmm. a lot of time looking for that. Um, and we also never could, found it. I don't he, think. Well, I don't know. Maybe he did, and he's just <laughs> you know hanging out in Miami or something. You know, as a thirty year old, I don't know. <laughs> but um, but but it's that. It is that fear of death that a lot of people say drive that fear of aging because we think about aging, the older you get, the closer you are to dying, you know, presumably. And so that human, you know, conundrum of how can I, how can I live longer? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we even modernize that, I, I uh, like to tell my students, you know, think about all of the, you know, popular genres. You know, you've got zombie shows, you have vampire shows, you know, what do they all have in common? Um, you know, they're immortal. And what does that mean? What What is that? H- how do we take these ideas of, you know, it, uh, living forever? Why, why are we so fascinated by that? And, and we're fascinated, but we also know that there's a danger. So the one thing these stories also teach us is you don't want to do that. You know, when we do hear about, you know, read myths or legends of, of someone who does live forever, they ultimately have the problem of having lack of meaning because with finitude comes meaning. So, uh, but that's something I think that humans in general have been, you know, that's, that's our reality is that we'll die. And, and that's pretty frightening. Hmm. 
Well, the second observation you made was one that I think plays a role in age discrimination and employment. And that is the observation that older people being marginalized. How are older people marginalized? There are so many misconceptions about being older that um, it, it happens in many ways. So first of all, we're bombarded with the message that to age is bad. Any commercial, uh, you know, turn on any television with a commercial and you'll be probably shown a product to make you younger or feel younger or, you mm-hmm. know, raise your testosterone levels or whatever or to color your hair to, you know. So so we're constantly reinforced with this message that age is bad. And it starts at a very young age. It starts with small children if you look at children's books and you look at uh, characters in children's books or in cartoons. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're always given this message. So we're on the one hand taught, you know, that we want to grow old as if, you know, to grow means, you know, all of those wonderful things about continuing to expand. But we treat aging as if we fall into old age. You know, once you cross middle age, you go over that hill and it's all downhill from there is 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 the the you know what we we practice I, go look at a birthday card you know try to buy one that's not ageist and you know <laughs> it's not easy my friends don't buy me ageist cards cuz they know how i feel about it and they'll say do you know how long it took me to find a birthday card that doesn't you know make fun of age but but we're constantly told that that it's funny it's silly the characters we see portrayed in films and on television uh, who are older if there are any, are usually, uh, you know, they're either you know, comedic, they're kind of somebody we make fun of, they're, you know, they're inconsequential, they're silly. Um, if you look at Disney movies, you want to look at older people. If you're an older man, you're, you know, the, I think of Belle's father on Beauty mm-hmm. and the Beast. He's a short little, you know, right. half the size of everyone else. But if you're a woman, then you're likely an evil witch. So, you know, we, we're, we're not given good images of aging. Therefore, we somehow think that to age is bad. And we treat older people, uh, even well-intentioned ways, we treat them like they're somehow less than. It's almost subconscious. Y- yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard because a lot of times we even think we're being nice, you know? And so, you know, you might think, oh, look at that nice old lady and, you know, let me help you across the street. Uh, you know, and that person may not view themselves as older and might not need any help across the street, but we're treating her already as if she's somehow in need and she's frail. And so it's something that we, you know, it's part of our cultural fiber that a lot of us aren't even aware of. Now, your third observation is one that I see play out in the workplace as well. And that is that older women seem to be more frequent victims of age bias. Now, that's my observation, not yours. Your observation was that older women play an important role, but it's not always portrayed well. Can you elaborate on that? Older women we think of um, as, you know, and I'm talking about women with children, and I don't mean to, you know, stereotype all older women as having children, because that is a very uh, a stereotype that exists. So we think about the kind of the matriarch of the family, and, you know, women whether they have children or not, provide so much care, older women especially, for other family members, Um, whether it's caring for grandchildren, whether it's caring for a spouse or partner, caring for a friend. Absolutely. Um, The fabric of caregiving, in fact, it's it's kind of funny. There's a 
biological theory called the grandmother hypothesis that came about because evolutionary biologists were thinking, you know, why do we have old women? Um, you know, most species die after they, you know, surpass their reproductive capacities. So women, you know, lose their reproduction and you know, somewhere around their 50s. So what are they good for then? <laughs> like, why have they survived from an evolutionary standpoint? And that grandmother hypothesis says, oh, so they can help care for their grandchildren and they can right. be these caregivers and these nurturers. Now, I don't personally ascribe to that belief, but... Um, but women play a very, very important part in um, a lot of those aspects of caring and caregiving, a lot of unpaid um, caregiving that goes on because of older women. And Kate, you also wrote, wrote an article in May of 2020 that a friend of mine, Dan Flynn, brought to my attention called, quote, a COVID-19 side effect, virulent resurgence of ageism, unquote, that we use for the title of this episode. It was published in the Hastings Bioethics Forum, and it caught my eye because of my work representing older workers in age discrimination cases. How has COVID-19 had a side effect of causing a resurgence in ageism? I think that before the pandemic started, um, a lot of us in the field of aging like to think that People were becoming more aware in general about, you know, age is not a, uh, you know, a bad thing that, you know, that people don't change just because you age, that there are lots of opportunities, you know, as people age. But what happened with the pandemic is because it was affecting disproportionately older people, the, the people who were dying were people over 75, especially people living in nursing homes, it unleashed this, this almost um, acceptance of being vocal about not you know, appreciating older people. Uh, I can think of the hashtag boomer remover, which was this whole trend of people on social media um, basically saying that boomers had caused all these problems to begin with, with, say, you know, the environmental issues and, um, you know, the economy and, you know, global warming, whatever. And so this was kind of retribution. The fact that it was so popular that that and other similar hashtags that basically were saying, hey, too bad, you know, that's what you deserve, and really taking a callous look at older people, uh, it was just shocking, not only that it happened, but it was shocking that it seemed to be acceptable. Um, prior to that, there was a, 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 the trend of OK Boomer, which was a response that um, some younger people were having to feeling like they were being marginalized, so kind of ages and that they felt they were experiencing. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, kind of did this dismissive, okay, boomer. Right. And that, that was kind of right before that. But then the boomer remover really took it to a whole nother level of... Um, to me, a, a frightening level of callousness towards what was happening to older people. Yeah, people like to joke about older people. Mm -hmm. It's it's you, and you can't joke about other what I call protected groups. Um, but you also wrote something that is really sort of unnerving, at least to me. You wrote, "quote of all the isms, ageism is arguably the hardest to address." Because old age is neither a valued stage of life nor an identity that many claim. 
the coronavirus pandemic may have made that effort even harder. Now, you've talked about that a little bit. Um, but first of all, what are you talking about? What are these isms that you're referring to? So, uh, you know, we think about, you know, racism, sexism, ableism, you know, anytime a group is devalued because of the key, you know, features of that group, being female, being a person of color, having a a disability of some sort. The, the thing with ageism, though, is that unlike other isms, uh, especially racism or sexism, th- those are lifelong things that people are ex- has experienced over time. Ageism, though, is something that inevitably hits people just by the virtue of the way that they appear age-wise. So you may be a person who's never experienced any other kind of ism, and suddenly you have gray hair, and then you're being treated differently. So it's this you know, terrible devaluation of people because of the perception of their age, we think about it with older people, but as I said, with you know, we could think of of looking at younger people as less than because we don't think that they know enough. So I mean, it, it does go both ways, but but really, there, there's a, an issue with older people specifically being devalued. And and the thing about age that makes it so difficult is nobody wants to claim to be old. I mean, there are some people who might like that, but most people want to avoid old. And and the joke we have in my field is that old is 10 years older than I am now. So, you know, if I, if I asked my sister's father-in-law, who was 90, would say, you know, I'm not old now. Harry over there, who's 100, he's old. But if you ask Harry, Harry would point to somebody else. So because when you get labeled as old, so many things are attached to that, you know, all of those stereotypes, you know, negative things, you know, um, people lose, worry about losing their cognitive abilities or memory. They, you know, worry about, you know, their, uh, you know, whether they become frail or dependent or it's just a frightening label to have and not one that most people would say, yeah, I'm old. I mean, yeah, with some exceptions, I, I see those websites where it's like, I'm a cranky granny and that's what I am. But most people don't really want to be identified in that way. They're identified by other people as being that that thing. Yeah, you can't imagine. You you mentioned the hashtag boomer remover that was so accepted. You can't imagine that in any other context. Like you you couldn't possibly have a hashtag with, that would say women remover or black remover, right? No, not not not. Why in- is it so accepted? I, I think that people, on the one hand, want to separate themselves from aging. There's this thing we call the othering of age. You know, age isn't me. It's somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's that other group. That guy who's 10 years older. Exactly. And that's why terms like elderly are so dangerous because elderly, it sounds nice enough. It sounds like you're saying, oh, you're an elder and you're, you know, mm-hmm. some some diminutive form of that. But what you're doing, though, is saying that there's entire group of people falls under this one label. I then dismiss them as individuals, and I just think of them as one block. I mean, I, I have a similar reaction when people might say that, oh, women vote in this way. Well, now women are a pretty heterogeneous group of people. They don't all think mm-hmm. the same. Same with older people. Like you don't hit 65 and then suddenly are this autonomous thinker with all 
older people. In fact, the older you get, the less like other people you become. The older you are, the more heterogeneous the population. College students have a lot in common. So (laughs) 20-year-olds have a lot in common. 30-year-olds less, 40-year-olds, and so on and so on. Every life experience is going to make you a little different than the people around you. So um, it's, it's, yeah, it's it's, uh, just aging is such a misunderstood time. Now, what about stereotypes? What kind of stereotypes are there about older people, and why are they dangerous? I think the the biggest is the fact that older people don't use technology or can't use technology, and that's a huge misunderstanding. In fact, there was um, some recent research that said that really people over forty in this particular article and under forty, you know, and in even you know the the fifty five plus group, which is sometimes demarcated, use the same amount of technology. It's it's that younger people tend to use technology for entertainment. Older people tend to use technology for information. But there's this idea that somehow younger people, they call them digital natives in some of the discriminatory job ads versus digital immigrants. So if you're a digital native, then you've been born in a time with technology. Oh, we want to hire a digital right. native. Yes. Yeah. Not a digital immigrant. There, there were ads that used to say that. And that's just such a misguided way of thinking because- it assumes that you know there's some you know natural tendency towards technology use that you have to be young to learn like a foreign language or playing the violin or something which is simply not the case the idea that goes along with that too is that the older you get the less likely you are to learn which is totally not true either you can't teach an old dog new yeah, tricks yeah but you really can you can you just have to understand how old dogs learn um, but they learn the same for example People learn best when they can base something on a technology that they know, you know, or, or a, a previous previous learning experience. So, what I teach a twenty year old how to use, you know, a, a Excel spreadsheet the same way I might a forty year old probably not because the forty year old is going to have different life experiences to draw on that might aid learning in a different way than a twenty year old. But both of them are equally capable of learning. So. That's it, one big thing, the idea that people are set in their ways. Mm-hmm. Um, not true. Not true at all. Um, that people lose creativity. Um, this, the, there's a lot of research on this. Misconceptions are that, say, they'll use artists and say, well, look, but, you know, so-and-so is the most creative in their 40s. And then their creativity went downhill. But that's not the case, what's happened is their uh, creativity has changed. So you might have painted 100 paintings in your 40s, and you maybe only painted 20 paintings in your 70s, but your 20 in your 70s might be far better than mm-hmm. all of the ones in your 40s combined. So there's this misconception that, you know, that we somehow just start to be less than, that we, you know, start to, you know, lose things with the years as opposed to this idea of growing and growing into old age. Well, what about, aren't there some pop, uh, positive stereotypes like older people have wisdom? That is a, um, a, a positive stereotype. Um, but, but I, I caution on may or may not be accurate, but it may be positive. I know a lot of older people who are very unwise. <laughs> and I'm sure we all do. And we know some younger people who have some wisdom. We do. We do. And so I guess whenever you just blanketedly attribute something to a group, you run the risk of really being dismissive no matter how positive it is. So to say, oh, 
you know, I, I, I hear this from a lot of students who are just starting a, a class in gerontology, and they mean it. And they mean it in the best of intentions. And they'll say things like, I love old people because they're so wise. And, <laughs> and, and they really, you know, they've... they've they mean that. They in a mean that. Very, way. They might have a grandparent they're very close to who is a very wise person to them, and and I'm sure a very wise person. But you know that that just really dismisses again. It, it puts everybody in the same category. It, it kind of strips the individuality out of experience. I mean, we wouldn't say I love middle aged people. They're so funny. I mean, it just sounds, well, they really are, but it just sounds so... they're so energetic. Yeah, right. (laughs) They're so wise. I mean, we just, we don't attribute those things to other groups. They're so resilient. Yes, yes, (laughs) exactly. So that that, there's just a danger in those blanketed stereotypes, no matter how positive they seem. So you've worked in different work environments. How do you think all of this plays out in employment situations? So I think it's a real issue because... There, there are a couple things that happen in the workplace that perpetuate ageism. So sometimes it's the older worker themselves who might say things like, well, you wouldn't know about this because this is before your time, mm-hmm. or back when I used to do this, you know, we had to do it manually, or things like that. Um, sometimes managers group people by age because they equate age with skill, which is a way of reinforcing those ideas that only young people are good at technology mm-hmm. and only older people are good at you know management, things like that, as opposed to looking and saying, hey, Bill's an older worker, but he's really good at technology. I'm going to put him in this group. And Carol's really good with management, at, you know, and she's a younger worker. So you know, the workplace gets demarcated to really build on those stereotypes. And that feeds that idea that, you know, um, that age equals skill or ability or, or, you know, having a creative team and having only young employees on it reinforces the idea that I don't think that only that anyone who's not this group is creative. I don't think this group is creative. So that teaches both the older workers and the younger workers that these are the ways that I'm perceived. Well, I think I'm going to give some free legal advice right now. You, know, We have current employees come to see uh, Freaking Myers and Roll every once in a while. And one thing I usually counsel people who are having difficulty in the job and they're in their 50s or 60s, I say, you know, don't talk about the good old days. Don't talk about how you did it 10 or 20 years ago. That's not going to be viewed as a positive thing to your coworkers because most people don't care about what you did 10 or 20 years ago. They want to know what you did recently. Now, the other thing you mentioned in that article is, quote, old age is neither a valued stage of life nor an identity that many claim. And I think we've talked about that. But then you also talk about something called successful aging. Can you elaborate on what you mean by successful aging? In gerontology, successful aging is a term that refers to a group of people who perform at a high level of cognitive ability and physical ability and social ability. Um, And so researchers use that term to try to parse out who seems to be aging better than others, really as a way to develop interventions. Successful aging, though, in general, tends to be used now as a term for aging well. Um, I don't like the term myself because 
I don't know what it means to be unsuccessful at 18 or who gets to decide <laughs> that. You know, does it, you know, does, right. are you going to get a big X or, you know, I think that people can certainly decide for themselves how they're aging. But I think the idea of successful aging for many people is the idea that I can continue to grow older and still be in good health, still have those learning opportunities or those social opportunities, and not have to apologize for the fact that I'm older. Not not to have to apologize if you go into a restaurant and think, oh my gosh, everybody in here is 25. Do I fit? You know, mm-hmm. is there something wrong with me? You know, am I too old to wear this? Am I too old to do that? So I think that that's what we tend to kind of on it just on a general level think about when we think about what would I be to be successful. Um, but again, I, I just, I don't, I get uncomfortable when I think about mm-hmm. successful or unsuccessful because I think there's a whole continuum of what success means to each person and how each person knows if he or she's been successful and all those things that go along with that. I guess unsuccessful aging is when you die. I guess, yeah. <laughs> Unless you die in your sleep because then I think that's the, I think that's the benchmark everybody's, you know, going for. <laughs> All right, Kate. Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time today to educate me and our listeners on such an important topic. And I congratulate you for your research that is so valuable to all of us. Thank you, Kate DeMadaris, very much. I really enjoyed this. This is great. 45 or 50 minutes. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my absolutely most favorite subject. So thank you for having me. It's my favorite subject too, I think. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you're a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll tune in next time when we explore more about working. I want to conclude this episode from Studs Terkel that I find valuable. Quote, work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than apathy. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying, unquote. Let's hope that we can all find daily meaning as well as daily bread and recognition as well as monetary benefits. See you next time on Freaking Out About Work, and please spread the word if you have enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends how easy it is to go to freakingoutabout.com. And Freaking Out About is all one word. Thank you, everyone.